This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. Fifty years ago, the finishing touches were being put onto one of the most successful and popular international agreements, the World Heritage Convention. The Prime Minister today announced the move to place the Great Barrier Reef on the World Heritage List. Mr Fraser, who was officially opening the World Wilderness Congress in Cairns, said discussions on the proposal were underway between the Commonwealth and Queensland governments. We've made it clear on a number of occasions, and I repeat the commitment today, that it's our intention to protect the reef and its ecosystems from danger of any kind. We will not allow oil drilling on or near the reef, while there is the slightest risk of harm to the barrier reef arising from such drilling. Malcolm Fraser speaking in Cairns in 1980. The roots of world heritage lie in the dreadful destruction of World War II and the hope afterwards that by identifying the cultural and natural treasures of the world, no matter where they were, we'd realise our shared humanity and avoid conflict. The World Heritage Program is run by UNESCO, an agency of the United Nations aimed at promoting world peace through international cooperation in education, arts, science and culture. The idea grew out of the successful campaign to save two massive temples cut into the rock in the village of Abu Simbel. Known as the Nubian Monuments, these temples would otherwise have been drowned by the building of a dam on the Nile in Egypt. These ancient temples were threatened by the rising waters of the Aswan Dam. Out of the determination to save these irreplaceable monuments came worldwide cooperation. 50 countries agreed to help pay for moving the temples to a higher site. The contract for moving them was let in 1963. Peter Valentine is an adjunct professor in the College of Science and Engineering at James Cook University. UNESCO, at that time taking an active international role for the protection of cultural heritage particularly, raised support around the world at the request of the governments of Egypt and Sudan, to try and move some of that cultural heritage, which was never meant to be moved anywhere, to get it out of the reach of the rising waters of the Nile as the dam was being built. So it was quite a race. But the significant thing was that 50 countries from around the world came together to help save this wonderful heritage by relocating it. They were huge sculptures, many, many, many metres high, tens of metres high. The task in doing that in those years would have seemed formidable, just about impossible from an engineering point of view. And they had to carve these solid rock features up into pieces that could be actually physically moved and then reassemble them. So it was a, a staggering engineering project. But I think the lesson from it was this willingness of people from all around the world to recognise how important that was to human history and let's do something together to help it. The phenomenal success of that project led to the development of the World Heritage Convention, a UN treaty created in 1972. So in 1978, the first uh, 12 sites were inscribed and there are some very famous ones like the, the Galapagos, but you can also see 
the US influence, the North American influence in getting lots of national parks listed, Yellowstone, there were two Canadian parks. So, you know, culture was somewhat less on the agenda there. So my name's Lynn Meskell. I'm Penn Integrates Knowledge Professor at the University of Pennsylvania, which means I have appointments in the School of Arts and Sciences, the School of Design and Penn Museum. And I'm an archaeologist and an anthropologist. I think the next year, 79, when the Giza pyramids were inscribed, it was a one-page document to say this is exceptional and needs no commentary. But since those early days, we have seen a flurry of sites obviously being submitted, dossiers being submitted by nations every year. So we're well over a thousand sites right now. Almost every country ratified the treaty. Any government can put forward a site, ultimately for consideration by a committee that meets once a year. Originally, sites were divided into two categories, natural or cultural, although it became obvious that some sites are both. The original convention included 10 criteria, five of which were cultural heritage criteria and five of which were natural heritage criteria. And there was pretty much a very logical separation between the two. You're either going to be then designated as a cultural site or as a natural site. I'm Michael DiGiovine. I'm a professor of anthropology at Westchester University, director of the Museum of Anthropology at Westchester, and the author of The Heritage Scape, UNESCO World Heritage and Tourism. And in fact, if you go on to UNESCO's website and the list, it's still demarcated whether it's a cultural site or a natural site. But that creates a lot of problems moving forward because there are lots of cultures, lots of groups of people, especially indigenous peoples, aboriginal peoples who who don't leave those traditionally Western kind of aesthetic ideas of what cultural, monumental, you know, heritage would be. And at the most, they would be subsumed under natural heritage, but then that denies the the cultural importance of those natural sites, such as Uluru, for example. If a government wants to put a site forward for consideration, it first has to put it onto what's called the tentative list. The sites are assessed by experts, the International Council on Monuments and Sites, ICOMOS, and the International Union for Conservation of Nature and Natural Resources, the IUCN. Then they're sent to the World Heritage Committee for a decision. And the committee uses that to get a bit of an idea of what's out there across the whole planet and what might be coming for them for consideration to add into the list. Because just because a country nominates a place doesn't mean it will necessarily be agreed to be part of World Heritage by the committee. The first step for any country is to prepare a tentative list. A country cannot nominate a place for World Heritage unless it first appears on a tentative list. It's using this mechanism to try and slow down and uh, manage the flow of nominations. And it's trying to get the individual countries to help the committee manage the, the numbers of nominations that countries are bringing forward. The convention has always been the most popular environmental convention that the UN's ever had. And countries are increasingly keen to get places on the list because of the many benefits that they perceive that come from it. Of the 194 countries that have signed up to the convention, 185, so almost all, have submitted sites to the tentative list for consideration. 
Peter Valentine says the documentation required has increased enormously over the years. Our earliest properties in Australia, which went in in 1981, just a few years after the first properties were listed, their nomination documents were slim and mainly consisted of photographs. So the Great Barrier Reef, for example, was a tiny little 12-page coloured booklet, mainly of photographs with a few statements about how splendid it was. There was no doubt in anybody's mind that that was exactly the kind of property that the World Heritage Convention was interested in getting on the list. So it was never going to be rejected. It was always going to go on the list. But over time, as more and more properties, and the, and the really obvious ones by then had been listed, more and more properties, the less well was known about them, they were less obviously made for world heritage, more and more evidence had to be put together. And in some cases, we didn't have enough science to know about it originally. So now we've developed a lot more science and that takes up a lot more space in the nomination. So nomination documents have expanded dramatically over the years. So the most recent nomination documents on natural heritage in Australia, they would be perhaps 20 times the size of the Great Barrier Reef nomination. I worked for a while in the World Heritage Centre looking at nominations that came in from different countries and some of the nominations came in in suitcases. You know, they had volumes of books and dozens of slides and photographs and films, you name it, all the material that might convince the committee that it was World Heritage. Once a site is on the World Heritage list, it's the responsibility of the country that nominated it to pay for its conservation, although UNESCO does have a small fund to help countries with specific payments. Right. Well, many people are under the misapprehension that uh, UNESCO has the cash to pay for that, and absolutely they do not. And the dwindling resources at that institution are really quite striking, particularly since the US withdrew its support in 2011. They were the largest funder. And so 22% of the budget has been cut. And so we're talking about many, many millions of dollars that the agency no longer has. So UNESCO is not paying for that conservation. And increasingly, the countries themselves do not want to contribute to a global fund that then helps other nations, which was the original intent. So now it's largely up to the nominating country, that nation that has that property, to make sure that the conservation of the site that they've they've talked about and they've promised is actually undertaken. And because UNESCO and the World Heritage Centre are underfunded and understaffed, the monitoring of all of those promises, the implementation, is very difficult to track on the ground. There are now over 1,000 World Heritage Sites. Since they're known for their spectacular beauty or cultural significance, it's hardly surprising that getting on the list can make a site a potential tourism cash cow. I don't think it was ever intended to be necessarily a vehicle for tourism development. In fact, if you look at the convention, tourism is not mentioned at all in the World Heritage Convention, and tourism development is only mentioned once as one of the possible pressures to be avoided that they're protecting against by designating these sites. But ironically, of course, this becomes a huge vehicle nowadays for tourism development. 
But we have to remember that in the beginning, there were, you know, the most iconic sites that were the most heavily touristed sites were the first World Heritage sites. They were the obvious ones. They were the ones that conformed the most to Western aesthetics and Western ideas of monumentality and grandeur and aesthetic beauty, both natural and cultural, from the Grand Canyon in America to sites in Italy like Leaning Tower of Pisa. In fact, they kept begging Italy to put Venice on the list, and they didn't want to because they said, we don't even need to. Why would we need to? We have enough tourists in Venice as well. But nowadays, you know, you do see lots of nation states offering up their sites as world heritage, particularly for the creation of tourism development projects. And I think a lot of them look to probably the poster child, uh, the one that I've written about a lot, which is Angkor, the Angkor Archaeological Park, Angkor Wat in Cambodia, which is a fantastic, wonderful, immense, monumental temple complex. It's the only religious structure you can see from outer space. And, you know, when I started going there, first as a tour operator, working in the tourism business, right when Cambodia and Vietnam kind of opened up in 2000, 2001, I remember every time I would go there, you know, I talked to guides and people on the ground there that worked in the tourism business. They kept saying government, and they kept saying, you know, we have 500,000 tourists and the next time we come about, we, we, we have a million tourists, we have a million five, we have 2 million, we have 3 million, and it just keeps going up and up and up. And of course, that, that puts a lot of pressure on both the host community but also onto the site itself. And of course, something like Angkor, if you, if you know about its design, it's, it was designed to almost like to float during the monsoon season. It's this, these, these canals allow it to kind of absorb the water and to float on top. And creating the tourist city of Siem Reap outside to, to accommodate more and more tourists in these really luxurious Western-style hotels with green grass and swimming pools and, and lush vegetation is sucking the rainwater, you know, the groundwater, and it's really destabilizing the entire site. So even though it's a poster child for how you can mobilize tourists through an iconic World Heritage Site, there are these pressures, obviously. One of the earliest of the Australian World Heritage listings, the wet tropics in far north Queensland, was almost derailed by a political dispute that went all the way to the UN. Queensland's northern rainforests and the World Heritage Committee in Brazil this morning unanimously decided to list the area recommended by the federal government. The decision was made despite the Queensland government's push to have the boundaries changed so logging could continue in selected areas. And the state is not going to give up. It intends to continue the battle in the High Court. The 900,000 hectares that are proposed to be listed by this foreign body, this conglomerate of incompetence, is in fact uh, the Queensland people's land. It's not the federal government's land, nor is it the IUCN's land. It's our land here. Only the federal government can make a nomination for World Heritage Listing. And at the time of the wet tropics, there was a great deal of environmental controversy around the tropical rainforest in northern Queensland. The importance of them scientifically had been discovered and made public Quite recently, in the 1970s, we came to realise just how special these places were. But in the meantime, the Queensland government was busy logging them and they were intending to continue logging them as long as they could. So there was state opposition. The then Premier, Jelke Peterson, stated that there would never be any world heritage in Queensland, that there'd be never any kind of UN convention property in Queensland. 
He was totally opposed to it. But he didn't have the constitutional power to stop the federal government making a nomination. And that's what the federal government did. So that was under the Hawke government, I think, from memory. The nomination went in for the Wet Tropics World Heritage Area and the Queensland government then put together a group of people, the Minister for the Environment and various other people, technical staff from Queensland Parks, were forced to accompany the minister and went off to lobby the United Nations about this. And that was slightly laughable because, you know, they had no voice. There was no place they could actually go to do a lobbying exercise. They have no voice in the conversation at all. In fact, in those UN conventions, uh, it would be quite inappropriate for a member of the UN, UNESCO or anyone else, to speak with a state government rather than a federal government. All the relationships are through the federal government. So anyway, that was a very interesting example of internal conflict within the country. The Queensland government took the Australian government to court over the nomination and, and that revealed to all and sundry that indeed the federal government does have the legal responsibility for these matters and the state government had no rights whatsoever. There was a point down the line a little further where the states urged the federal government not to make any nominations without their agreement. Having seen what happened in in Queensland, the states then suddenly became more protective of their rights. And so an agreement eventually was put together under a later government more recently in the 90s that it would not nominate a place for World Heritage listing without the agreement of the state government concerned. Australia has 20 World Heritage Sites, four cultural, including the Sydney Opera House, 12 natural, and four like Kakadu, a mix of both. Perhaps the most controversial is the Great Barrier Reef. The World Heritage System has a list of sites designated as in danger and has been considering the Great Barrier Reef for inclusion on this list. So the original intent of the World Heritage in Danger list was to help that state party mobilise resources and expertise to deal with it, to garner international attention and so on. But many of the countries, most of the countries, actually see it as a penalty, as a punishment. So in World Heritage Committee meetings, it's always talked about as carrots and, and sticks. And so, again, through diplomatic means, most countries evade that listing because they rely on partner countries sometimes old colonial influences and so on, relationships, so that they manage to stave off endangerment. Now, that's fine if you're a country like Italy, but for many African and Middle Eastern nations, that has not been the case. And so we have a lot of pushback, particularly from African ambassadors, diplomats, saying why are our our sites always on the list, have been on the list for a decade or more, and there's no strategy to get us off the list. Conservationists have reacted with disappointment at a decision last night not to inscribe the Great Barrier Reef on UNESCO's in danger list. It was a diplomatic tightrope, but last night the federal government succeeded in convincing 21 countries not to declare the Great Barrier Reef in danger. Only Norway objected. These important decisions should not be overshadowed by politics. It's been interesting to watch that unfold at World Heritage Committee meetings and what Australia has done is develop a strategy where it says 
you know, climate change is not our fault. I've seen Nepal do the same. Kathmandu earthquakes are not our fault. We shouldn't be put on the World Heritage List in danger because it's not our fault. But as I just said, the listing was meant to draw public attention, to raise funds, to raise visibility. It was not meant as a punishment, but countries like Nepal and Australia don't want to be seen to be punished for something that they consider beyond their control. And of course, having the World Heritage List in danger for the Great Barrier Reef would probably impact tourism in that case. And I understand why Australia is nervous about that and has done everything to stave off that listing, including flying people out from the committee to to look at the sites in question. However, one also has to consider things like industry and other sorts of development that's happening at the same time. So there's many factors that, that are involved. There are 52 properties listed on the in danger list. It's also possible for a site to be delisted. An oryx sanctuary in Oman was taken off the list in 2007 after its size was reduced by 90% following the discovery of oil. In 2009, a bridge built in Dresden cost Germany one of its heritage sites. But Lynn Meskel says it's not often properties lose their World Heritage badge. There have only been three cases where sites have been delisted. In the case of Germany, they willingly accepted that because of development, they would have their site removed. In Oman, when natural resources were found and exploitation or extraction of those resources was deemed an appropriate course of action. They had their site delisted. The last one is Liverpool, and they absolutely did not want the site delisted. And many of us were surprised that it actually happened. That was because of their own development strategies. They decided to to move ahead with that. They had been warned over, over many, many years. And ultimately, the committee took the decision to finally delist it. I never thought it would happen, but it also says something about the declining role of Britain in the World Heritage arena, particularly post-Brexit, they probably didn't have the allies and alliances they needed to fend off delisting. So it has happened. It's very rare. And there are many sites that are, in fact, deeply threatened, but will never even get on the World Heritage list in danger because of political reasons. I think here mainly of Venice, which is a site that absolutely should be on the World Heritage in Danger list, but because of powerful allies and, and European connections, it's, it's probably not going to happen. The World Heritage Convention has become in some ways a victim of its own success, with increasing political pressure, sidelining expert advice, and the deluge of the sites put forward threatening the value of the brand. And it's a reason why the operational guidelines have become more and more specific and clear about what they might require. The operational guidelines establish criteria that must be met and they are quite technical now. They've had to be simply to make sure that these less well-known sites, less obvious sites, do actually meet the criteria. But I would also add as an observer, that some of the decision-making by the committee seems to me to have become increasingly political and less scientific or technical from the point of view of the natural and cultural heritage. In recent times, we've seen an increasing number of sites, decisions about the site 
getting on the list or not getting on the list, diverging from the recommendations of the scientific bodies, IUCN and ICOMOS. And that was unheard of in the early decades. The thorough assessment of the sites by the advisory bodies is an essential part of the system. But in recent years, a number of those recommendations, which include recommendation that the sites not be listed, have been overruled by the committee, which is its power. These are advisory bodies and they're recommendations only. The committee doesn't have to accept them. But traditionally, they did. They recognised the value. Hard work goes into those reviews and normally they aligned quite well. But now they don't. What lies ahead for World Heritage? The main impediments I see are political ones. So, for example, recognising Indigenous rights. I think UNESCO has a long way, particularly in the World Heritage arena, a long way to go to recognising Indigenous stakeholders and other sorts of connected communities. At the World Heritage meetings, the decisions are taken by nation states and then NGOs and other again, Indigenous activists, are only allowed to speak after a decision has been made. They're given two minutes only. It's already too late. That's a system that should be changed, absolutely, to include those voices beforehand. But really, it's the it's the states' parties. You know, we are talking about the United Nations, and it's actually the nations that are the decision makers, and those are governments, and those are incredibly political organisations. And so some way to allow more influenced by civil society, I think is is key. Finding the mechanisms to do that is going to be a challenge because every change to the guidelines is voted on or decided by those countries. So they are not going to allow or not going to want to allow people to have a greater voice. So changing and modifying the system, particularly around human rights, I think is, is key. Funding is another, allowing for other sorts of actors. I think UNESCO has to now increasingly partner with excellent organisations like the World Monuments Fund, the Aga Khan Trust for Culture, incredible work, Aleph, Arcadia, these larger NGOs or conglomerates of NGOs and what I call philanthrocapitalists, so individuals with a lot of money who want to do really good heritage work. So it has to, it has to accommodate all of these different players now, and it has to stand up and call out these predatory states that are destroying sites, whether it's in Yemen or now in Ukraine. There has to be, I think, a a stronger message that that is sent out, that it can't just retreat into a, a sphere of diplomacy. Last year, Australia added the Flinders Ranges to the tentative list. There's been lots of activity in Australia trying to get the Flinders Rages added to the tentative list in the hopes that they would then go on and become a World Heritage Area. From a technical point of view, I can see wonderful opportunities within Australia, for example, for another 20 sites at least. We have such spectacular natural sites, most of which, all of which I should say, include Indigenous culture and would not go forward without it, in my view. There's some spectacular cultural sites as well. Again, principally Indigenous cultural heritage. So I'm optimistic about that. I think that all those sites I'm talking about, the the 20 additional ones, are are ones that most Australians would immediately relate to, would think, oh, yes, of course, why aren't they on the list already? Some of them will go on the list gradually. In that context, assuming the convention continues 
along the present pathway and we continue to nominate sites and they continue to get assessed positively, we could end up with 40 World Heritage Sites. Peter Valentine from James Cook University. The other guests were Professor Lynn Meskel, author of A Future in Ruins, UNESCO, World Heritage and the Dream of Peace, and Professor Michael DiGiovanet, author of The Heritage Scape, UNESCO, World Heritage and Tourism. If you'd like to find out more about World Heritage Sites, it's really worth checking out the UNESCO website. It's absolutely fascinating. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Kerry Phillips, and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano for ABC RN. Follow us on the ABC Listen app. There's lots more good stuff there. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.